Welcome to the preaching service here at Lakewood Bible Chapel. Please uh, open your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 7 and stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, We'll be starting this morning in verse 10. This is God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Now it happened after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on this day, all the fountains of the great deep split open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Then the rain came upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On this very day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth and the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, every fowl, every winged creature. So they came to Noah into the ark by twos of all flesh in which was the breadth of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and Yahweh closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water multiplied and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and multiplied greatly upon the earth, and the ark went on the surface of the water." And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains under all the heavens were covered. The water prevailed fifteen cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth breathed its last, that is, birds and cattle and beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, as well as all mankind, all all in whose nostrils was the breadth of life. Of all that was on the dry land died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah remained, and those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Last week, we considered verses 1 to 9, in which we saw the continued obedience of Noah as God commanded him to get on the ark and load the animals with him. We saw that God commanded him to do this in preparation for the flood that was soon to come. And we saw that in response to God's command, Noah obeyed. We also saw that it was through Noah's obedience that he was prepared For the coming judgment. And now the day has come. For 120 years, Noah had been faithfully obeying the commands of Yahweh, heeding Yahweh's instructions, with the knowledge that Yahweh would not strive with man forever, and that in 120 years, God would send judgment on all flesh. So, with this in mind, let's jump right in and take a look at the first point of our outline the water comes. Verses 10 to 12 read as follows. Now it happened after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. 
In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on this day, all the fountains of the great deep split open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Then the rain came upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of that month, on this ominous day in history, Yahweh's judgment comes. Consider the scene. Everyone but Noah and his household are going about their day-to-day routine. They're taking their kids to school. They're eating a meal with family. They're walking the dog. They're sleeping. They're coming home from work or going for a run or reading a book. They're going about their normal everyday routine without a care in the world for the warnings that Noah had been preaching for the last 120 years. Matthew 24, 38 confirms this when it says, For as in those days before the flood, Noah entered the ark. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. On that day, everything changed. For on that day, the water of the flood came upon the earth. On that day, the fountains of the great deep split open. On that day, the floodgates of the sky were opened. And on that day, the rain came upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. The water came, the fountains opened, the floodgates opened, and the rain came. Cataclysmic destruction on this oh-so-fateful day. Fateful for those left behind. Faithful for those who did not heed the desperate plea of Noah to repent, to turn from their sin, to follow the way of righteousness. Faithful for those who were going about their mundane lives without a clue in the world as to what would happen next. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. In verse 11, we see that there were two great storehouses where this water came from, the great deep and the floodgates of the sky. We first learn of these storehouses back in Genesis chapter 1 on the second day of creation. When God created the expanse and separated the waters, Genesis 1 verses 6 to 8 reads as follows, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. And so there were large storehouses of water above and below the earth. And verse 11 in our text this morning tells us that these were opened. Henry Morris says the following regarding this event. When the time for the destruction of this world arrived, all that was required was to bring the two deeps together again, as they had been when first created. The waters above the firmament must be condensed and precipitated, and the waters below the crust must burst their bounds and escape again to the surface. Let's think about this for a moment. God knows all things, including all things to come, For he sovereignly ordains every event, every moment of history, past, present, and future. And so, 
Isn't it quite something to realize that when God on the second day of creation was separating the water with the expanse, that he was in a sense setting up the very mechanism by which he would now pour out this judgment upon the earth. The creative act performed by God on the second day of creation literally placed, literally positioned these great storehouses of water above and below the earth. And we see at the end of verse 7 that these storehouses were opened. And the implication is that they were opened by somebody. They didn't just open in and of themselves. No, Yahweh opened them. And thus, in this single act, worldwide judgment was poured out on the earth for the sin and wickedness that was pervasive in all of mankind. A worldwide judgment with water. And while God promised Noah after the flood to never judge the earth in this manner again, to never flood the whole earth, there is still a judgment to come. And I think that this is one of the key applications of this whole historical account. There is still a judgment to come. And that judgment is not a judgment by water, but fire. A, a final judgment, a, a last judgment and this, too, will be a global and pervasive judgment. It will be a judgment to eradicate the sinful corruption that is present throughout creation. Yahweh will, on that day, literally burn away the horrific effects of sin on which was once his perfect creation. And just as Noah was certain that God would bring judgment, we can be certain that there is a day set aside for the final judgment of all mankind, a judgment that will once and for all rectify the effects of sin. And through the condemnation and sentencing of the wicked, every wrong ever, ever committed will be made right in the final sense of the word and in the eyes of Yahweh who created all things. We know that this is that this last and final judgment will come because 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 speaks about it. It says, But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But let, let's not overlook what, what Peter says a few verses later in verse 9. Verse 9 reads, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. How important then that we, we don't presume upon the patience of the Lord. Because the fact of the matter is that those in our text this morning, those who were busy about their day-to-day -day routine, those who had heard the warning of Noah of the coming judgment, just as you now are hearing a warning of a coming judgment, those in Noah's time presumed on the patience of the Lord and they were caught out. They were surprised and in that moment they were found wanting and perished. Hear me now, listen to these words. Do not be like those in our text this morning who ignored Noah's warning and presumed on the patience of the Lord. It is important to realize that Yahweh is the kind of God that does indeed give every opportunity. Yahweh is the kind of God that waits until the very last moment before bringing judgment. 
for he truly wishes that none should perish. But it is also important to realize that Yahweh's kindness, Yahweh's forbearance, his patience, his long-suffering will run out. It will run out like it did for those in our text this morning who ignored Noah's warning and in their sinfulness remained outside of the ark. And so with this in mind, I implore you for the sake of your eternal soul, don't wait, but instead take care of business before the Lord right now, this morning. Repent of your sins and fall at the feet of Christ in total dependence and total humility for the salvation of your soul from the consequence of your sins. And if you do this, then you, will, you won't be like those outside the ark. You'll instead find yourself in Christ and thus in the tender care of his saving hands for your soul, you, like Noah, will escape the judgment. Now, let's turn our attention to verses 13 to 16, which read as follows. On this very day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, every fowl, every winged creature. So they came to Noah into the ark by twos of all flesh in which was the breadth of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh entered as God had commanded him. I think it's interesting that these details are recorded four times in just two chapters. We see this repeated in Genesis 6, verses 19 and 20. We see it in Genesis 7, verses 1 to 3. We see it in Genesis 7, 5 to 9. And we also see it in these verses that we've just read. And I think the natural question arises, why is this recorded so many times? Well, Matthew Henry addresses this in his commentary. Speaking specifically of verses 5 to 9 and now verses 13 to 16, he says the following, Here is repeated what was related before of Noah's entrance into the ark with his family and creatures that were marked for preservation. It is thus repeated for the honor of Noah whose faith and obedience herein shone so brightly by which he obtained a good report and who herein appeared so great a favorite of heaven and so great a blessing to this earth. This is repeated for the sake of emphasizing Noah's faith and Noah's obedience. This is repeated for the sake of honoring Noah's faith and Noah's obedience. And therefore, it demonstrates how important our faith and our obedience is to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the value of your faith. And don't underestimate the importance of your obedience. For by your faith you are saved, and by your obedience you demonstrate that your faith is true. And by your obedience you demonstrate your love for Christ. Treasure these things. Thank the Lord for them, for apart from Him we do not have saving faith, and thus we would not be a people of obedience to the Lord. On the contrary, we would be like those outside the ark, so to speak, and thus standing in the path of ensuing judgment. Let us be a people who are grateful, a people of thanksgiving for the grace, love, 
and mercy that God has shown us. Let us be grateful that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let us be a people full of gratitude that that we, like Noah, have the kind of faith that saves and the kind of faith that produces obedience to the things that Yahweh commands. Now, because we are looking at verses 13 to 16 in our text this morning, it is important to consider an objection that is levied by the world in their attempt to discredit Scripture. For the objection is that there is no way that Noah could have fit all the animals that are in the world onto the ark. And this is evident by the covers of even children's books about the ark, where the animals are depicted in such a manner that it appears that the ark is stuffed to the brim and that the animals barely fit. Here's the thing. At first glance, this objection might seem like it could have some merit, right? I mean, there are a lot of animals in the world today, and there probably were a lot of animals in the world in Noah's time as well. That's a, a reasonable assumption. And if that's the case, then there's no way that Noah could fit a male and female for all those animals on the ark. Well, it, it seems like a problem then, right? I mean, if Noah couldn't fit the animals on the ark, then how can Genesis 7 be true? And if Genesis 7 isn't true, then what about the whole book of Genesis? And if the, if the whole book of Genesis isn't true, then the very word of God is called into question, and thus the whole of the Bible is brought into doubt. If this objection is true, it's a problem indeed. We therefore need great wisdom to know how to navigate such a, a challenge. For at first glance, such a challenge might feel intimidating. It might even sow a seed that might cause you to wonder whether or not what you believe is actually true. It might sow a seed that would cause you to question the accuracy and authority of Scripture itself. Well, Solomon has some wise words that when faced with something which in the moment might cause you to wonder whether or not what you believe is really true, he has the following words found in in Proverbs 18, 17, which speak into this kind of doubt. He says, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Hmm. Well, we've only heard one side of the case thus far. The the fact of the matter is this challenge against our text this morning remains unexamined. Well, let's let's take a look at it. There is a particular word that is used in our text this morning. That word is kind, which is the Hebrew word for mean and defined as a category of things distinguished by some common characteristic or quality. Well, that's interesting. Let's return to verses 13 and 14 now to see how this word kind is used in our text this morning. Genesis 7, 13 to 14 read as follows. On this very day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark Now pay attention here in verse 14. They and every beast after its kind. And all the cattle after their kind. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind. And every bird after its kind. Every fowl. Every winged creature. So what we see here then, now that we understand the meaning of this word kind, is that Noah, for the most part, took one male and one female animal of each kind of animal onto the ark. 
So quite contrary to the challenge of how did God fit a male and female of every type of animal on the ark, we see that instead each type, we see that instead of each type, it was rather that Noah brought them only according to their kind, which is a classification, a grouping of different types of animals into their larger animal kind. Well, this kind of changes things. This means that a lot less animals would need to fit onto the ark. Consider these words from Christian scholars on this matter. Some have estimated that there were as many as 25,000 kinds of animals represented on the ark. This is a high estimation. With two of each kind and seven of some, the numbers of animals would exceed 50,000. And though not by very much, relatively speaking, Regardless, whether there were 16,000 or 25,000 kinds of animals, even with two of each and seven of some, scholars agree that there was plenty of room for all of the animals on the ark, plus food and water with room to spare. And when you remember that only a few of these animals were elephants, and a majority were very much smaller animals, some suggest that only 15% were larger than a sheep, then it becomes more and more clear that Noah could and did indeed fit all the various animals onto the ark according to their kind. And thus, after we examine the other side of the case, as per the advice of Solomon in Proverbs, in the end, the original challenge that we were considered, considering is found wanting. And let me encourage you, as, as you have conversations with your work colleagues or family members that don't know the Lord and if they bring up such challenges, don't feel like you have to give an, an answer in the moment. I mean, if you do, go ahead. If you have an answer, give an answer, but, but don't feel pressured to do so. Instead, realize that it's perfectly fine to say that, that you don't know the answer, but the, you'll, you'll look into it and get, and get back to them. In fact, this is a very practical way that you put Proverbs eighteen seventeen into practice. Now, before we move on, let's take a look at the last phrase at the end of verse 16, a very important phrase which reads, Yahweh closed it behind him. Yahweh closed the door. Yahweh was the one, in the end, at the last moment, who secured the safety of those inside the ark. For the rain had already started to fall. And would fall for 40 days and 40 nights. The, the fountains of the great deep were splitting open and the floodgates of the sky were overflowing. God's wrath was rushing forward with a vengeance upon the wickedness of the earth. But the same God who was judging the earth was the one who secured those who were inside the ark from that judgment. There is a common phrase that we are saved by God, from God, for God. And I think we see this here in our text this morning. And the fact of the matter is, we play no part in securing our salvation from the wrath of God. If it was up to us to secure our salvation before the judge of the universe, if it was up to us to secure our salvation before the holy and righteous judge of all things, if it was up to us to secure our salvation before Yahweh, who is perfect, if it was up to us, we would all be doomed. We, we would all be judged, counted as guilty, and condemned to death for an eternity of torment 
and suffering. If it was left up to us, we would all be destined to hell in a handbasket and would not be able to do anything about it. Absolutely nothing. God is the one who secures your salvation. God is the one who does what we cannot do. For the standard that must be met is so high, so lofty, so glorious, that there is nothing within ourselves that could ever get within a trillion miles of achieving it. Yahweh requires perfect righteousness. And apart from Christ, none of us have it. Not even Noah had it apart from Christ. But Noah did have it. Otherwise, Yahweh would have never shut the ark. Yahweh would have never secured those inside the ark apart from the righteousness that Noah had, which was not his own, but Christ's. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. You have to see this with your own eyes. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, read as follows. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Pay attention to these words. For what the law could not do, God did. So why couldn't the law accomplish salvation for us? Why isn't it the case that that if, if you just do your best to obey the law that you'll be saved? Why isn't it the case that if you're a pretty good person, especially when you compare yourself to others, others like murderers, thieves, others like Hitler, I mean, Hitler was a really bad guy, and he's definitely going to hell, but I'm not going, I'm I'm nothing like Hitler, so, so I've got a chance, right? Why isn't it the case that if you're the best person that you can be, that if you try your best, that this isn't good enough? to be saved. Why why isn't this the case? The reality is that a lot of people bank their eternal destiny on their best efforts to do good in this world. Well, let me caution you. If, If that is you, let me warn you that this is a very bad idea. That in fact, this is a recipe for disaster. But, but why? Why aren't my good deeds, my, my donations to charity, my giving money to the poor, my, my helping an old lady across the street, my volunteering at the food pantry? Why aren't my good deeds good enough? Well, and that's the heart of the matter, isn't it? Our good deeds aren't good enough. But, but why? Why is this the case? Well, it's because this kind of thinking is based on the wrong understanding of the law. This thinking is based on the understanding that the law was given as a roadmap for salvation. And actually, this was the mistake that the Jewish people made. They looked at the law as the path to achieve salvation themselves. 
And they were so convinced about this that they even made up their own list of over 600 additional laws to follow just to make sure that they didn't even get close to encroaching upon the actual law given by Moses. Paul speaks about this in Romans 10, verses 1 to 4, which read, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So why couldn't the law accomplish salvation for us? The answer is because the law is not a roadmap for us to follow for achieving our own righteousness for salvation. On the contrary, the law is more like a mirror that reveals our sinfulness and the need for another righteousness. The the law reveals our need for Christ's righteousness. The law describes what it looks like to live in perfect righteousness. The, The law is actually a reflection of the perfect nature and character of God himself. And when we as men and women who retain the corrupted and sinful flesh inherited from Adam, when we stand in front of that great revealing mirror of the law, we are only ever exposed as lacking what is needed for salvation. We are exposed because we have inherited the sinful nature from Adam and we are exposed because when we try and obey the law, we find that instead we break that law every moment of every day. Praise the Lord then for verses 3 and 4 in Romans 8, which read as follows, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law, like a schoolmaster, teaches us something. It teaches us that we need the righteousness of another. We need the righteousness that Noah had, which was not his own. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if we have it, if we have the righteousness of Christ's as our own, Then like Romans 8, 1 and 2 say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So in light of this, the question that we must answer, the question that this text demands of us is, are you in Christ Jesus? Have you embraced Christ Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior? Have you submitted your life to Him and His authority over your life? Are you broken over your sin? Do you hate the fact that you have violated God's law? You realize that that when you break the law, when I break the law, the law which is a reflection of the perfect character of God, that you are saying something about what you think of God. Have you repented of your sin, which is against God? And have you fallen at the feet of Christ in humble dependence upon him, in 
humble dependence upon his perfect righteousness for your salvation. If not, then you remain outside of Christ. Much like those who remained outside the ark after Yahweh closed it. And the reality is that those on the outside could not enter. For once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. For those in our text this morning, Yahweh had already closed the door. Their time was up. Yahweh's judgment was already upon them. But this is not the case for you yet. For you, the door is still open. You can still walk into the ark of your salvation, which is a picture of the protection that you find from the wrath of God and Jesus Christ. You can still be saved. The door is still open for you. But I can't guarantee how much longer that will be the case. I can't guarantee that if you wait any longer to embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, that the door will remain open for you to do so. Unbeliever, I encourage you with the words of David in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Listen to that voice with faith and come to Christ. Now that we understand the significance of Yahweh closing the ark behind Noah, of Yahweh doing the work to preserve those inside the ark from his wrath outside, let's consider the second point in our outline. Judgment prevails. Verses 17 to 20 read as follows, And the water prevailed and multiplied greatly upon the earth, and the ark went on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains under all the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits high, and the mountains were covered. The first thing that I noticed when I was reading these verses is this word prevailed which is repeated three times and once more in verse 24. Verse 17, And the water prevailed and multiplied greatly. And then in verse 19, And the water prevailed more and more. And finally, in verse 20, The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. And then again in verse 24, And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. This word prevailed, which is in the Hebrew, gavar, and literally means to be strong, to prove more powerful or superior. We see this word emphasized in verse 17. He, he doesn't just say that it prevailed, right? He says that it prevailed in a multiplying manner. And in verse 19, we read that these waters prevailed even more and more. The picture that is being painted here for us is one of rushing, overpowering, swiftly flowing and overcoming torrents of water. It's as if the author is grasping for words to adequately describe the totality and severity of the destructive force of what is transpiring outside of the ark. And this becomes even more sobering 
when we recognize the fact that these words are not just describing a really bad flood, but they are also describing the nature of the wrath of Yahweh being poured out in judgment for sin. And this begs the question, how seriously do we see our sin? There is a common Christian cliche, God hates the sin, but not the sinner. People say this because they are trying to avoid offense to the idea that God not only hates sin, but also the sinner. This cliche is used to emphasize that God loves everyone and that he is a really nice God and thus would never be the kind of God that would actually show hate towards any individual person. Obviously, he hates sin, but could never hate the sinner. And this is not something that is only found in the fringe parts of the church, but is common throughout as we even some... um, uh, it was something that for a long time I even personally agreed with until I allowed myself to truly consider the words of Scripture and to, until I considered the words of God on this topic. The fact, of, the fact of the matter is, God not only hates sin, but He also actually hates those who sin. He, he hates the wicked. Consider Psalm 11.5, which reads as follows, Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. His soul hates. The word used for hate implies not just hate, but even a scorn that the Lord has for the wicked and for the one who loves violence. Now consider Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6, which which reads, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. This isn't just the sin being spoken of here, but the person. He hates the workers, not just the iniquity. He destroys the liars and doesn't just hate their falsehood. He abhors the man and not just their acts of bloodshed and deceit. There are other examples, but I think that just from these two passages of Scripture alone, it's clearly evident that this cliche of God hating the sin but not hating the sinner is in fact not the case. The the Lord indeed hates the sinner too. And I say all this because the notion that Yahweh hates the sin but not the sinner diminishes the seriousness of sin. And by offering a scriptural correction to that false understanding, it also elevates the necessity for us to take sin all the more seriously. So the question stands, how seriously do you take your sin? How seriously do I take my sin? Here's something to consider. Do you know that your sin kills you? Not just in a temporal sense, but also in an eternal sense. John Owen is famous for saying, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that's from a larger quote which reads in its entirety, do you mortify, which is an old school word for kill? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. John Owen was inspired to pen this quote based on his study of Romans chapter 8 verse 13 which reads, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. 
And notice that there's a cooperation here between us and the Spirit in doing this. That if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. And the implication is that, that we can't do this apart from Christ. And yet hating our sin so much that we kill it, that, that we mortify it, that we put it to death is what it looks like to be living a life in which we have been given the righteousness of Christ. It's what your life should look like if you are living by faith and obedience as Noah did. It's what your life should look like if you are seen by Yahweh as righteous. So I encourage you, examine yourselves. Ask the Lord to search your heart as David did when he said in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. The reality is that we are much less likely to overestimate the seriousness of our sin and we are much more likely to underestimate the seriousness of our sin. And so the ferocity of the wrath of God shown in the tumultuous floodwaters shows us something different. It shows us that we should take every precaution to follow John Owen's exhortation and be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, as we are considering these waters and the extent of the flood, we should take a moment to address the notion that the flood was not actually a, a global flood, but instead it was just a localized event that only took place in the Mesopotamian valley of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. You may or may not be surprised to hear that a number of professing believers will even take this position that the flood was only a local event and not global. Let me ask you this, from a plain, simple, and straightforward reading of the text, do you get the idea that what is being described here is merely a localized event in the Mesopotamian Valley? Or do you get the idea that what's being described here is something much more, something much greater than just a tiny little localized event? Do you get the idea that this event was something that impacted the whole world? Do you get the idea that this event was in fact literally an actual, historical, global event in which caused a global flood. Here's what's going on. There's a great compromise that has taken place within the church where some have bought into the lie of evolution and that it took millions of years to form what we now see in creation today rather than the literal seven days of creation that we spent a number of weeks studying back in Genesis chapter 1. The problem is that a global flood contradicts the secular view of millions of years and thus calls into question those who stand firm on this position. It's important to mention that facts about the world around us are interpreted in different ways to support the favored view of the person doing the interpreting. And this is true for both the secular understanding that, that claims evolution in millions of years is the best explanation for what we see around us. And it's true as well for the Christian understanding that makes the claim that, the God, that, that God as creator of all things best explains what we see around us today. Facts such as billions of dead animals and plants buried in rock layers 
composed of water, deposited sand, lime, and mud all around the earth. Facts are facts, and they merely serve as evidence that is then interpreted by a worldview which attempts to explain the world around us. Answers in Genesis makes the following helpful statement regarding this. They say, it should immediately be obvious that these two interpretations of the evidence are mutually exclusive. Most of these rock layers are either the sobering testimony to Noah's flood or the record of millions of years of history on this earth. One must be true and the other must be false. We can't consistently or logically believe in both because the millions of years can't be fitted into the 370-day length of the global cataclysmic flood of Noah described in Genesis 6-8. to And the unfortunate thing is that when an old earth advocate on, in the Christian community opposes the clear teaching of Scripture that the flood was global, what they are doing is exchanging their Christian worldview for the secular worldview which unfortunately stands against all that they claim to stand for. My goal here is not to try and convince you from a scientific or historical standpoint which view is true. The Bible tells us what is true, and as believers in Jesus Christ, that should be all that we need. Even so, I do believe that there is some benefit in knowing the response from a Christian worldview, if for nothing else that we are prepared as much as possible to give an answer. Here's an example, again, from Answers in Genesis. By the way, this is a group of believers who have scientists and historians who literally spend all of their time examining the facts and examining the evidence through the lens of a Christian worldview. And this is their conclusion on the matter. It wasn't until popularization of the belief in geology that only slow and gradual geological processes formed the geologic record over millions of years that the local flood compromise became increasingly popular. <clears throat> Yet the scriptures are clear that the deaths of animals and man only came into the world as a result of the curse. So the fossils must have been produced after that tragic event. The subsequent global flood could have produced most of the fossil-bearing sedimentary layers, including the fossilized thorns we find. And Noah would not have needed to build an ark or take animals on board if the flood were only local, as there was plenty of warning to escape to another region. These and many more biblical, theological, and scientific considerations make the local flood compromise totally untenable. This is all ultimately about the authority of all of God's word, which plainly teaches that the flood of Noah was global in extent. For the Christian, the Word of God is the ultimate and final authority for all things, including whether or not the flood was global or local. So with this in mind, let's consider the next point in our outline, all flesh outside the ark dies. And this will serve only to further affirm that the flood was global because the judgment was global. Verses 21 to the first part of verse 23 read as follows, And all flesh that moved on the earth breathed its last. That is, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, as well as all mankind, 
all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, of all that was on the dry land died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky that were blotted out from the earth. Do these verses give you the impression that anyone survived? Do these verses give you the impression that this was a, a local flood and not a global one? If the previous verses in our text this morning weren't convincing enough that the flood was global, then these verses truly put that discussion to bed. And the important point here is that if the flood isn't global, God's judgment for sin isn't total. But these verses say otherwise with phrases such as all flesh, such as all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died, every living thing that was upon the face of the land. This is clearly speaking of a global event. And it's interesting to note that we really are not told very much about the terror experienced by those outside of the ark. In fact, we are told nothing of the suffering that they went through. We're, we're told nothing of the horrific experience of drowning or of suffocating to death, of trying to swim as long as you can until you are so exhausted that you give up and die. We are told nothing of the destructive force of the water thrashing and breaking human bodies into pieces. We're told nothing about the millions and potentially billions of human bodies floating lifelessly on the surface of the water, let alone the animals. On the contrary, we're simply told that everyone died. And in, in terms that emphasize the totality of it. It is repeated over and over and over that anything that have li had life died. And as we've already said, this should cause us to come to a deeper appreciation of the seriousness of sin. This also speaks to the fact that death is the final unavoidable consequence of sin. This speaks to the fact that Yahweh is a just God and that he cannot let sin go unpunished. That he is perfect in justice, which means that he is uncompromising in justice. This means that he is a judge that doesn't let anyone off, but instead requires the full extent of the law. This means that every wrong will be made right, that every sin will be paid for, and that all iniquity will be justly punished. But... While Yahweh is perfect in meeting out justice according to the full extent of the law, he is also perfect in mercy. His judgment is only half the story, and his judgment is in fact the lesser half of the story. For the greater half of the story is described in the final point of our outline, all flesh inside the ark lives our passage concludes with these words this morning. It says, And only Noah remained, and those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. In these words we see a new beginning. In these words, while it is only Noah that remained, Noah indeed remained. And the question we should ask ourselves is, why Noah? What made Noah different from every other one of the millions of people on the face of the earth in his generation? Why was Noah spared? Why was Noah's household spared? And the answer is simple. They were on the ark. 
And if it's not already been made clear, the ark points to the even greater reality of the protection that one finds from God's judgment for sin in Jesus Christ. And we see this if we look back at verses 17 and 18 from our text this morning, which read as follows, Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and was multiplied and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and multiplied greatly upon the earth, and the ark went on the surface of the water. In the complete and perfect mercy of Yahweh, the ark was lifted up so that it rose above the earth, so that it went on the surface of the water. The ark and all those who were inside were lifted above the prevailing waters such that while the waters prevailed over everything else, they did not prevail over the ark. The ark and all those inside were kept by God from the judgment of God. Friends, brothers and sisters, the ark is a picture of Christ. And the question that I want to leave with you this morning is, are you in the ark? Are you in Christ? Have you embraced Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? Because if you have, then like Noah who was in the ark, you are now in Jesus Christ whose righteous sacrifice for your sin through the shedding of his blood on the cross will protect and preserve you from the prevailing judgment of God. Please take seriously these words as we now close. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to talk to me or any of the other elders who will be more than happy to talk with you about how you can be saved from the judgment of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now I invite Noel and the music team back up to lead us in musical worship as I close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, for this picture of Christ. Lord, that in the ark, in Christ, we are saved from judgment. Lord, and as believers, we are grateful for this, that you have saved us, Lord. And I pray for any of those who are here that don't know you would be being drawn by you now, Lord, and that they would also embrace Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.